I invite you to, invite you to turn to the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians, where we will be for the near future. But while you're turning there, I'm going to ask you a question. Now, do not raise your hands because you're going to show how old you are if you answer this in the affirmative. I'll explain to those of you who don't know, but you'll, you'll get this in a minute. How many of you have ever heard of green stamps? I told you not to raise your hand, Bulls. Or its rival, blue chip stamps. And you're going, what in the world are you talking about? Okay, what this was, they were stamps, legitimately, green stamps or blue, blue chip stamps, and they would give them to you after you bought something at a gas station, a grocery store, a pharmacy, or whoever was giving them out. And they were, they were really, really popular in the 60s and the 70s. So what they would do, you would say you'd buy $100 worth of stuff. Now, that's a lot of money back then. They would just dole out this, these stamps, and you'd go home. Mothers, you, knew, you know you did this because I, I had this done to me. Go lick those stamps and put them in the book. They're just like, just think of a whole wad of, ew, postage stamps that you have to lick. All right, they were in these little books. You'd fill them up, and then what you would do, you would take these stamp books, and you would take them to the Redemption Center. And you would lay them out, and you would, you'd go there, and they had all these kind of cool stuff for parents. And they'd have furniture. They would have maybe even patio chairs. Tableware? Now, I'm going to give you a little hint here. I've heard rumor that in our kitchen, in the RBC kitchen, there were some things that were redeemed. They weren't redeemed, I don't think, with stamps, but they were redeemed with Betty Crocker coupons. So when you eat next time, you have eaten something that has been redeemed because somebody paid for it. Interesting. Well, in 2022, this is so, Williams, you'll understand what we're doing here. You might not even understand this. You don't have a credit card yet, I hope. Good, good. We gather airline miles for the money that is spent, and we use them to buy maybe pay for travel purchases. It's probably the closest thing we ever come to redeeming something. And why I say that, redeeming is not something that we, is in the 21st century. Can you cut that down just a little bit for me? Got a little ring, thank you. It's not something that we understand or something that we, is in our everyday vocabulary. And that's why we can read the next section of scripture and maybe, be disinterested because we don't understand what actually redemption means to be set free to be set free the realization of man's true need mankind's true need to be set free from sin it means much more than exchanging something of equal value for 
something else. This morning, we'll look further into the blessings that we've been given beyond measure by viewing the Son's accomplishment in salvation. Last week, we were shown the blessings that we have because of the Father's plan of salvation, which happened before the foundation of the world. How he specifically chose us, you, for the purpose of adoption into his family to live a holy and blameless life before him. Not just so you could live, but to live holy. And he did this with joy. He didn't do this out of, okay, I have to. He did this with joy. Well, in today's passage, we transition from the plan of the past to the present and its effects going into the future. And just one more time, out of respect to the Word of God, would you stand with me, please, if you can? As I read today's passage, it's on page 976 of the Blue Bibles, if you need one. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning at verse 7. In him... We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. Before we begin, I want to tell you a little story that I've heard and I've heard before, but I'm going to retell it and recall it. In a city on a shore by a big lake, a small boy lived And this boy lived in a place where he saw ships and sailing ships, and he loved them. He loved these things, and he had a deep fascination, and such a fascination that he and his father took months to build a model, not just a normal model, a model that would sail these ships very, very close to shore. Well, He began to sail at the water's edge, and then one day a sudden gust of wind took this small ship, and it took it out of sight. He lost track. He lost lost it. It was gone. Well, he was heartbroken. He's distraught. And the boy returned home inconsolable. His dad said, it's okay. No, I've lost my ship. Day after day, after that, he would go walk the shores. He'd walk the shores all around the lake, but he could not find the ship. It was gone. It was gone. Then one day, walking through the town, he went by a hobby shop, and he saw his ship in the window. Now, he went in quickly, and he asked the the proprietor, Hey, that's my ship. I need it. And the proprietor says, no, you'll have to pay for it. 
you can't prove that that's your ship. You're going to have to buy it. So the young boy went out of that store, and he went and found every single job that he could do, that he could accomplish, everything his dad had him do, his mom had him do, his neighbors had him do. It's like Kendall when he mowed the lawn in Wasco. He would go from place to place to place to place to place so he could eventually buy a car. Well, this boy went so he could buy a ship, and he finally had enough money to go in, and he paid the proprietor what was owed him. And the ship was given to him. And on his way home, as he was holding his precious boat in his arms with great joy, and he said this, he was talking to his ship, you are twice mine. You're twice mine now because I made you and because I bought you. Just so redemption is payment of a price or a ransom. I don't think we can, we're not going to put Christ in this story, but it's a story of buying something that is very, very important to you. When the idea of redemption is used in the scriptures, what does it mean? A legitimate question. Well, there are three words used in the New Testament. Two are very, very similar, to, and two of them are used to to make one, one point. The first word is agorazo, which comes from the noun agora, which means marketplace. Marketplace. The other Greek word that's very similar is ekagorazo, which is, comes, ek means out of or from. So it's from the marketplace, which means it conveys the meaning to buy something, to buy and specifically to buy in the marketplace. This word is used when emphasizing the price that Jesus paid for our salvation. They represent spiritual, the spiritual purchase or redemption. An example of this word is found in Galatians, and I'll read those to you. Christ redeemed us from cur the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. From Revelation 5, the same word is used. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. The other word used to convey the idea of redemption is lutru, lutru. It means to release from captivity. It was used when a person paid a ransom to acquire the release of another person, especially a slave. Now, this was used. Why was this used? This word, there were six million slaves at the time that Paul wrote this in the Roman Empire. Six million. And it probably had a... Had a it was in front of everyone. Are you a free man? Yes, I am. Were you born free? Or did somebody buy you? If a person wanted to free someone who was important to them, who was a slave, they would have to buy that person. 
And then they bought them for themselves, and then they would grant the slave freedom. And along with that freedom, they would have to give them a certificate, I would say a certificate of authenticity, about what happened to prove the transaction. So I'm free. You got proof? Yeah, right here. And this is the word that Paul uses for redemption. And this is what Jesus' atoning sacrifice on the cross accomplished. He himself paid the redemption price to buy for himself helpless, sinful mankind and set them free from their bondage. To set us free from our sins. To set us free. And what was the price? We know the price. In him, we have redemption through his blood. Hear me. All humanity was, a slave, it was in the slave market of sin. Powerless to do anything that we could to, to remove ourselves from the situation. The price was paid was something more infinitely great than what we could ever do. Peter explains the price this way. He says, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The writer of Hebrew pens Jesus entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of, blood, of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. Not something that would only last for a time, but eternal. And in my Bible reading on Friday morning, before I got out of bed, I got on my iPad and I read, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He redeemed us. We've been redeemed. We have redemption because of his blood. No wonder in heaven we will shout from Revelation 5, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Worthy is he who has redeemed us. Now think back of the story of the boat. It will provide him great honor and blessing and joy because he has redeemed us twice. For he's owned us twice. We were created by him. You were created. Mankind was created by him. And now through the cross, he has redeemed those who would believe. The Son accomplished our redemption. And with that also, he provided forgiveness. We're not only redeemed from the bondage and power of sin, but we no longer need to be under the great weight of divine guilt concerning our sin. We need to understand that. You are not guilty before God if you are in Christ. Get rid of it. How much more, more better we could live our lives if we understand our position. 
we have the forgiveness of our trespasses. The author of Ephesians, who we know as Paul, clearly was aware of his sinfulness apart from Christ. He wrote this. He said, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, whom I am the foremost. I'm not going to bang on Paul, but I think I could give him a run for his money. When I see how holy and how blameless and how awesome God is, I am so unworthy, but he has given us forgiveness. I am going to say this very clearly and very slowly, so please hear me. Believers have been forgiven by God. You should be a little bit higher and be able to stand a little bit higher and look someone in the eye a little bit better because my God's forgiven me. It's central, a central salvation truth throughout both the Old and the New Testaments. First, the New Testament. Now, think with me as I read it. We read it often when we take communion. Jesus spoke this truth at the Last Supper from Matthew. For this is my blood of the covenant. Notice that, my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. You're forgiven if you're in Christ. You're forgiven. A commentator writes, and I quote, Behaviorists and those from some other schools of psychology maintain that we cannot be blamed for our sin that it is the fault of our genes, our environment, our parents, or something else external. But a person's sin is his own fault, and the guilt for it is his own. The honest person who has any understanding of his own heart knows that. The gospel does not teach, as some falsely maintain, that men have no sin or guilt, but rather that Christ will take away both the sin and the guilt of those who trust in him. The sin's gone. Gone. As Paul told the Jews in Pisidian Antioch, through him, which is Christ, through Christ, Forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things. Chains are gone. Your chains are gone. Well, what about the Old Testament? Listen to these beautiful promises. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As far as the east from the west, that's a long ways, folks. A long ways. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you, Isaiah writes. And Micah, in his book, says, He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Church, if you're in Christ, you're not condemned. You're not condemned. When we hear he is your Lord, he tells you like the woman who was caught in adultery. If you're in Christ, if you sin, he says, neither do I condemn you. But he says this, go and sin no more. 
You don't have carte blanche, but you're forgiven. We have been forgiven from the penalty of sin, but yet we need what one has called the continual forgiveness of cleansing. But we don't need the continued forgiveness of redemption. Once you're redeemed, you're redeemed. But yet, we still fall short. We still sin, and we still confess those. Examples, Peter at the Last Supper, when Jesus told him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean. And even when we sin, we're told this from 1 John, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from some of our unrighteousness. All, all. I know this, total forgiveness is something to celebrate. R. Kent Hughes writes, it, speaking of forgiveness, is beyond anything positive thinking, therapy, or hypnosis can provide. It is complete, extended to the conscious and the unconscious sins in our lives because, because God knows all things and because Jesus' blood is infinite. Have you experienced his forgiveness? Have you experienced it? It's available for anyone who is in Christ. The son's accomplishments and salvation are redemption, forgiveness, and of course, grace. And like anything about God, his love, his holiness, his majesty, it is so high and so otherworldly, the attributes that describe him, we can't even fathom them. We can't understand how big, how great he is. But we read, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, he lavished them. He gave you everything. Now, as a hypothetical illustration, I'd like for most of us, or for you to think of one of the most wealthy men in the world. All right, I'm going to give you a hint. This is not, I'm not bagging on Elon Musk at all. But we're going to think if Elon Musk saw someone and wanted to give him, say, you know what? I'm going to give him a $20 bill. Okay. There's, there's two ways he, could, ways he could, he could give. I got ahead of myself. Got excited. If Musk wished to give of his riches, he could give according to his riches or from his riches? According to his riches or from his riches? Now, if Elon handed out $20 bills that he felt sorry for or just, there, you, you look like you could use a 20. You know, I might even need that $20 to, to buy a meal. Well, Okay, he gave you 20 bucks. It might have provided him a great photo op if he had someone following him around, I'm sure, with their iPhones. Or I don't, Is he good with Apple, though? I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't, Google, Apple, I don't know. It's, I don't know what kind of phone he uses. But lasting value? 
the 20 bucks is going to go really, really fast. But it was a nice gift. It was a nice thought. He would be giving from his riches, from his riches. But think what it would be like if he gave according to his riches. Well, what could he do? Well, he could pay my, my mortgage off. That'd be nice. He could pay for an education for one of my kids or my grandkids, and that would last them a lifetime because I'm sure that they would use that throughout their life. Or even better yet, Elon could give me a Tesla. A Tesla. And not just a normal Tesla, please. Don't, not those normal cars. The Model S played, plaid. The Model S plaid. All right, so get this. Does the quarter mile in 9.23 seconds. I'm trying to talk my wife into getting that for her next car, and she says no. Do you see the difference? Do you see the difference? The latter would be from extravagance, and that how, it's how God gives. 19th century theologian Charles Hodge explains how extravagantly God gives. He wrote, when God gives according to the riches of his grace, he gives from the, his unlimited treasure house. Get that picture, a treasure house. Grace is unmerited favor, an overflowing abundance of unmerited love, inexhaustible in God and freely accessible through Christ. Freely accessible. And church, how long will it last? The grace? Forever. Eternity. We often sing Newton's Amazing Grace at funerals. That's the only time, a lot of times, that I hear it. But what about every day of our life? When we've been there for 10,000 years, bright, shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's grace or praise than when we first begun. Forever. Forever. The divine son has accomplished redemption, which provided forgiveness, lavished grace upon us, and if that wasn't enough, he gives discernment. The final example of present time blessings from the son's accomplishment that are provided in Christ's work on salvation is discernment. And Paul continues, in all wisdom and insight, he gives us all wisdom and insight, spiritual wisdom and insight. We're given understanding on how to live. God's wisdom, not the wisdom of the world. God's wisdom which is seen as the world is foolishness. But wisdom regarding spiritual things that can only be understood because the Spirit of God resides in you at your spiritual birth. Something or someone that helps us explain this would be from the late Alan Bloom. He was a man who was a professor at the University of Chicago in the 20th century. And in his best-selling book, The Closing of the American Mind, which was reprinted in 2008, he described how his uneducated grandparents lived, in his words, on a wise and noble level because of the influence of the Bible. Hear that? His uneducated 
educated grandparents, but they were educated in the Scriptures. He explains, and I quote, I do not believe that my generation, my cousins who have been educated in the American way, all of whom are MDs or PhDs, have any comparable learning. When they talk about heaven and earth, the relations between men and women, parents and children, the human condition, I hear nothing but cliches, superficialities, the material is satire. I'm not saying anything so trite as that life is fuller when people have myths to live by. I mean rather that a life based on the book is closer to the truth, that it provides the material for deeper research in the access to the real nature of things. R. Kent Hughes comments further. He writes, when one's life is steeped in God's word and through God's grace, one has been given all wisdom and insight, one is equipped with spiritual discernment to face whatever comes in life. Wisdom is the knowledge which sees to the heart of things, which knows them as they really are, Understanding is that which leads to the right action. Those so equipped can discern the spirit of the times and stand tall and confident. Now put all the present blessings together as they flow out of redemption. There's redemption itself. We're twice owned by God. There's absolute, total, comprehensive forgiveness and the freedom it brings. There is the fact that it is not from the riches of His grace, but according to the riches of His grace, that He lavished grace upon us a veritable flood of undeserved favor that will go on for all eternity. And then there's the wonderful gift of spiritual discernment. What more do we need? What more do we need? And there is a wonderful gift of spiritual discernment. Each of those notes comes together to produce a remarkable song in the heart of the redeemed that will only be amplified in eternity. And if I could point to each one of you, each one of you, if you're in Christ, has those as your possessions now. Now. In all of these blessings this morning, Paul had focused on the current blessings of what Christ had accomplished which is redemption, forgiveness, grace, and discernment, and every single one presents realities which you can enjoy. Go enjoy them. He now points us towards future blessings that the Son accomplished in salvation, which is making known the mystery of His will. How God would accomplish this was a mystery in times past. A biblical mystery is something that is not known or made known or can be spiritually even discerned by ingenuity or study at the time, but God finally reveals it. In the Old Testament, God's people went through elaborate rituals which would involve what? Sacrifice of animals? day of atonement, they all pointed towards a greater truth. Even when God made his promises to Abraham, think, through you, 
The nations will be blessed. Through your seed, the nations will be blessed. He didn't tell Abraham that the one who would bless the nations would suffer and die. He was only told that one would come. And to even Abraham, the details remained hidden, and Abraham was a friend of God. Then throughout the Old Testament, more details became known. Isaiah tells us, been crushed for our iniquities. In Zechariah, you've been pierced. The one who has been pierced. And then finally, when God came to earth, Jesus, when he appeared on earth, it was all in God's perfect timing. He made his purposes known. That is when they came to fruition, when they came to pass, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And we'll see this, how this takes place throughout this book. Spoiler alert. It's seen through the church. It's seen through the church. It's Jew and Gentile being harmoniously reunited together in Christ through Christ's act of redeeming a people to himself. The great preacher, British preacher, I mean, uh, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it well, and I quote, The perfect harmony that will be restored will be harmony in man and between men. Harmony on earth and in in brute creation. Harmony in heaven and all under this blessed Lord Jesus Christ who will be the head of all. Everything will again be united in him and wonder of wonders, marvelous beyond compare. When all this happens, it will never be undone again. All will be reunited in him to all eternity. That is the message. That is God's plan. That is the mystery which has been revealed to us. These things are so marvelous that you will never hear anything greater, either in this world or the world to come. Close quote. In the book of Philippians, we hear the picture. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. It is my prayer that you bowed your knee to him before this time. 
going to change gears. The bowing of everyone's knee will take, some place, take place sometime in the future. And until that time, there will and is a continuous battle being fought for the truth of the gospel. This Sunday in North America, there's been a call for those in the pulpits of Christ-centered churches to call attention to what is taking place regarding governmental legislation regarding speaking against homosexual and transgender ideology. This comes specifically from Canada and in general the rest of North America. In late November 2021, in Canada, Bill C-4 was passed and subsequently went into law January 8th. That was not this past Saturday, but the Saturday before. Bill was aimed, was, excuse me, the bill will amend the criminal code in Canada to ban conversion therapy. It will criminalize, among other things, causing another person to undergo conversion therapy, promoting or advertising conversion therapy. Now, the term conversion therapy is very broad in its meaning, but in its brass tacked it down to its, where it's boiled down, ultimately even suggesting that acting out on same-sex attraction is a sin, is seen as harmful and wrong, what the Bible says about biblical sexuality will be unlawful. Our brothers in Canada cannot speak from the pulpit condemning sexual sin without the fear of being thrown in jail. In the preamble of the bill, it says that the belief that heterosexuality, cisgender, gender identity, and gender expression that conforms to the sex assigned to a person at birth are, no, are to be preferred over all other sexual orientation, gender identities, and gender expressions. If you teach that, it's a myth. So according to Canadian laws of January 8th, as I said, the belief in God's design for marriage and sexuality will now be seen as a myth. The bill defines conversion therapy as a practice, treatment, or service designed to change a person's sexual orientation to heterosexual, change a person's gender identity to cisgender, change a person's gender expression to that it conforms to the sex assigned to the person at birth, repress or reduce non-heterosexual attraction or sexual behavior, repress a person's non-cisgender gender identity, or repress or reduce a person's gender expression that does not conform to the sex assigned to the person at birth. The definition is intentionally broad and it can clearly be used against any preacher or elder who either speaks against homosexuality, transgenderism, or who counsels a person, hear me, who even counsels a person to obey Christ and abandon their homosexual 
transgender actions and lifestyles. This means of January 8th, 2022, it will be against the law to preach, teach, or counsel regarding God's design for marriage and sexuality. Everyone who knowingly causes another person to undergo conversion therapy, including by providing conversion therapy to that other person, remember this is as simple as saying, what you're doing is wrong. God's word condemns this. By providing conversion therapy to that other person is guilty of an indictable offense and liable to imprisonment for a term of not more than five years. Similarly, everyone who knowingly promotes or advertises conversion therapy is guilty of an indictable offense and liable to imprisonment for a term of not more than two years. Before you say and object, that's only Canada. I would remind you that we live in California, where in 2012, California passed Senate Bill 1072, 172, banning gay conversion along with New York, New Jersey, and Nevada. And as of this morning, there are many states and many counties, more than those. In doing this, the California government sought to prohibit any correction of an unbiblical view of sexual identity because, and I quote from California legislation, California has a compelling interest in protecting the well-being of lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender individuals. On August 18, 2020, the Democratic Party declared at the National Convention that it would ban harmful conversion therapy practices. Again, very wide, very wide. For some, bringing this issue to the forefront might seem like an attack on a group of people who have been oppressed. But if what the Bible says is true, and it is, there are eternal consequences when a person continues in this lifestyle. In 1 Corinthians 6, it's written. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Now listen, this verse, this list is much larger than the homosexual group. This list does not pick on them. This list is here to call them to repentance, to not be self-deceived. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexual, sexually immoral, that's broad, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. <coughs> and such were some of you. 
They were changed. They were called to change. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Close to home. I received an email this week concerning a church in our own Mennonite Brethren Conference. Leadership in the United States Mennonite Brethren Conference and the Pacific District Conference has taken a stand and suspended Willow Avenue Mennonite Church in Fresno because they, as a church, decided to follow cultural norms rather than biblical ones. They wish to be loving and relevant to the people around them. I want to be loving to the people around me too. This is Willow's statement. This is their statement of faith, as you might say, an amendment. We resolve to welcome, accept, and affirm LGBTQIA plus people without reservation to all aspects of life of the congregation, including but not limited to membership, baptism, marriage, volunteer leadership, employment, and pastoral ministry. That flies in the face of the New Testament. Hear me. We are called to be loving. We are called to be welcoming. We are called to be friends. But to ignore conduct that God's word clearly condemns, to not call people to turn to God and not turn from their sins is disobedience. And I would say this, it is unloving. I'll finish here. In 1 Timothy, Paul wrote to his young pastor explaining why certain things are done in the church. Included was a command to pray that we were able to lead lives that honor God. He wrote, First of all, then, I urge that supplication, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that, they may lead, they, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom. Bind his people from the sin market. As a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. I'd like to close my time today by praying for the leaders and for the pastors and for the Christians 
who will be facing this. And for us. Father, we come to you. We come before you wishing to be faithful to our calling to turn to you in faith and to live holy, sanctified lives before you and the world. We pray for you to move in the spiritual realm to change the hearts of those who are attempting to legislate morality. Lord God, as your word says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I pray for our Christian brothers and sisters in Canada and across the world who will be forced to choose whether to obey God or the laws of men. May you give them the strength to speak the truth to those who they minister to. Whether it be in a public setting, in a public forum, or over a cup of coffee in an apartment. God, we ask for you to move. And when these conversations and proclamations from your word take place, may you draw many people to yourself because of the pointing to your redemption from sin and forgiveness found in you. Give us here the resolve to pray for our governmental leaders that they legislate in ways that allow us to continue to live in a way that is pleasing and honoring to you. May we be able to speak the truth in love. to our neighbor. But also by your spirit, Lord God, cause us to live in ways that bring glory and honor to you and to your son because you have redeemed us from the slave market of sin. In Christ's name I pray.